It is a privilege to be back in the house of God today. Um, looking forward to the meal after service. Um, right now, there's 195 countries in the world. On July 9th, there will be 196 when South Sudan uh, declares its independence. Uh, so 195 different flavors of food, according to Brother Steele. Uh, that's going to be interesting. I don't know that I'll be able to handle all of that. I'll do my best. So uh, I want to say thank you to this wonderful, amazing congregation right here in Pasadena, California. You guys have just been awesome to my wife, uh, Reeve, Haley, and Elan, and myself. You've been so kind and uh, generous to us, and I want to say thank you for that. Thank you to your pastor and uh, his family, uh, Sister Tamara Brown, and Cambria, and Brooklyn, and Eden. What a wonderful uh, group of uh, people there. And then all the leadership in the church, the various individuals that helped us from your church secretary to the, my kids are in Sunday school. And this morning, uh, Haley looked at me and she said, Daddy, uh, we were pastoring in Florida and now we've been in St. Louis. She said, Daddy, when you're pastoring again, can we have, can we have Sunday school on Wednesday night like they do here? I said, yes, we can do that. So, so thank you very much to the wonderful people and to, uh, um, well, I, I don't want to say thank you to Dr. Charlie. He's made me feel bad for my health being out of shape. But to uh, Shanna leading us in worship, uh, what a tr- tremendous spirit she has. And... Uh, so all the wonderful people that helped us are usually I love seeing what I'm seeing about these young people going to youth camp. What a great thing. Would you put your hands together and let all these people know that you're thankful? Very, very, very thankful to see all that's, that's happening here, especially for those. I'm, I'm from Florida. I'm an East Coast guy. So now I know that stuff's happening on the West Coast just as Wonderful is what's happening back on the East Coast. What a great thing. Only we do it several hours sooner over there than you guys do it over here. I'm going to be on jet lag when I go home. Let's go. Let's raise our hands to the Lord right now and ask God to minister to us in the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come into this sanctuary today. I thank you for those, Lord, who led us in worship, Lord Jesus. Let us into your presence, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what we've already experienced in this house. I pray that you would continue to help us, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open, Lord Jesus. We are your children. We're your children today, Lord Jesus. Brokenhearted, humble before you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everybody said amen. God bless you. You may be seated. One last thank you. Uh, tomorrow morning about 5.50, AJ is going to pick me up and take me to the airport. And so uh, while the, most of the world is still in bed, a bed asleep, he'll be ministering uh, tomorrow morning. So thank him for that. Several years ago, I read an article in the uh, Washington Post newspaper. And the title of the article was Pearls Before Breakfast. The writers wanted to perform an experiment, which I love experiments. And they wanted to... To, to ask the question. They wanted to, in context, in perception, and uh, in 
priorities. They wanted to ask the question, in an ordinary setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? And let me set that question for you. For example, if you were to travel to Paris and visit the, uh, the Louvre, the, the world's most uh, renowned museum, there hanging on the wall is uh, the most visited painting of all time, the Mona Lisa. When you go to see the Mona Lisa, you are going there to see the Mona Lisa. And if you go to Paris and you don't see the Mona Lisa, you are a failure. I just think it's amazing. I bought a copy of it and hung it in my home. It's just an amazing thing, but it's beautiful because it's in the right place and it's your time that you're investing in seeing it. But what if there was an amazing painting, Monet or some other great artist, hanging in the local greasy spoon? And you're going to get your lunch and you're in a hurry. Would it still be beautiful? In that setting, would it be an amazing thing? And so to help answer this question, they enlisted the services of Joshua Bell. Now, personally, I'd never heard of Joshua Bell, but those of you who know classical music may recognize him as one of the finest classical musicians in the world. Perhaps the greatest violinist that is alive today. He was a child prodigy who at the age of five strung rubber bands across some nails, tuned them, and proceeded to mimic the sounds he heard on the radio. Now I have two children that are over the age of five and neither one of them have exhibited these traits yet. And today Joshua Bell, who is my age, plays in in studios or plays in concert halls that are sold out and the cheap seats are $100 a piece. And the Washington Post newspaper writers, for their experiment, they asked Joshua Bell to put on some blue jeans, just a normal T-shirt and a ball cap, and to play incognito at a Washington, D.C. Metro Rail station. And so he decided to play a piece written by Johann Sebastian Bach, and he would place it on a violin that he had purchased for $3.5 million, a violin that was built by Antonio Stradivari in 1713. At 7.51 on a Friday, January 12th, during the middle of the morning rush hour, Joshua Bell emerged from the metro at the La Infant Plaza station in Washington, D.C. and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. He removed a violin from the case and he swiveled around to face the pedestrian traffic and he put a few dollars in that empty case, just as seed money. In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people walked by him. Each one of these passerbys had a quick choice to make. Do they stop and listen? Do they walk past with a blend of guilt and irritation, aware of our selfishness, but annoyed by the demand of our time and our wallet? Do you throw in a buck just to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't we have time? What, what are the moral mathematics of the moment? 
And on that Friday, January 12th, those private questions would be answered in an unusually public way because the Washington Post had positioned cameras hidden all around the D.C. Metro Rail Station and they'd put reporters all around it to ask questions and the passerby did not know that the fiddler standing against the bare wall outside the metro atop the escalators was one of the finest classical musicians in the world playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most expensive violins that has ever been made. The musician did not play popular tunes whose familiarity alone might have drawn your interest. That wasn't his test. These were masterpieces that have endured centuries on their brilliance alone, soaring music befitting the grandeur of the cathedrals and concert halls and certainly not a D.C. Metro Rail station. So what do you think happened at the top of the escalators or a shoeshine stand? In a busy kiosk that sells newspapers and lottery tickets and a wall full of magazines. And so, on Friday, January 12th, the people walking by and waiting in the lottery line looking for a long shot. On this day, they would get a lucky break, but they would not recognize it. They would have a free, close-up ticket to a concert by one of the world's most famous musicians. But only if they were in mind to take note. And Bell played with acrobatic enthusiasm from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, his body leaning into the music and arching on his tiptoes at the high notes. He's an amazing performer, and the sound was nearly symphonic, carrying to all parts of the arcade as pedestrian traffic passed by. Three minutes went by before anything happened. Sixty-three People had already rushed by when finally there was a breakthrough. A minor breakthrough, but a breakthrough. A middle-aged man altered his gait for a split second and turned his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing a violin. And he kept on walking. Something was happening. A half minute later, Bell got his first donation. A woman threw in a dollar and then scooted hurriedly off. It was not until six minutes in the performance that somebody actually stood against the wall and listened to Joshua Bell play. Things never got much better for him. In, in 45 minutes that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped. Seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and taking the performance for, for just a few seconds. Twenty-seven of them gave money. Most of them on the run for a total of $32. That leaves the 1,070 people who just hurried by, oblivious. Many were only three feet away, but never even turned to look. But amazingly, and this just astounded me when I read this article, one demographic remained absolutely consistent. Every single time a child walked past, Every single time a little boy or a little girl were walking past, they would try to stop. And their parents would hurry them on. Children recognized the beauty of Joshua Bell's performance. But adults were too busy to see what was going on. And in the newspapers, they asked the question, if we can't take time out of our lives to stay a moment and listen to one of the best musicians on earth, 
played some of the best music ever written, if the surge of modern life so overpowers us that we are deaf and blind to something like that, the Washington Post asked, then what else are we missing? 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus Christ robed himself in flesh, came and was born in a manger. Half a world away, wise men were staring at the stars. They were doing what they had always done. And they were charting and they were measuring and they were naming. They were developing their own mythology when somebody somehow recognized that there was a different star in the heavens. And it's unique that this happened because they had... They had been a part of, of, of this lifestyle for centuries. They were not the first to begin to study the stars. And, and there were so many others that had studied the stars. And, and yet no one had seemingly noticed this. And they began to research and try and discover what, what exactly might this star be. And, and, and they began to, to just to wonder about it. And, and it turns out that, that there was a, a verse of Scripture in, Numbers, in, in the book of Numbers where... where, where the, the Numbers 24, 17, where Balaam is hired by Balak. Balaam is a false prophet. He's hired by the king Balak to curse the nation of Israel. And so in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not now. There will rise a star out of Jacob, and a scepter will be in his hands. It was a prophecy announcing the birth of a king, but it's the only verse in all the Bible that says that Jesus' birth would be marked by a star. And yet somehow this passage of Scripture, which was prophesied by Balaam, the false prophet, makes its way down into the hands of some wise men from the Far East. And they put two and two together. And on one piece of Scripture, these wise men pack their bags and begin traveling around the world to find a baby that is not of their own lineage, that is not of their own nationality, that is not of their own country, but is a baby that is being born in a Jewish home, a home that is in captivity to the Roman Empire. And yet they found their way through this place and they bring and they worship him. And somehow these wise men are able to find Jesus on a star and a singular verse of Scripture. They go to Herod's palace, and when they get there, because that's where a baby should be born, in a palace, and they knock on the door. I don't know how it would have been. I don't know what the king's palace would have been like. But they knock on the door, and they go in, and they explain, we have seen his star. And Matthew describes it as his star. It was his star. It belonged to him. And the wise men said, we have seen his star, and we have come to worship him. And Herod says, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we have this prophecy from Balaam. And they hand it over to him. And, and he calls for the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the rulers of the temple to come and to explain to him just exactly what's going on. And, and they come and they tell him that, that indeed Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. And, and, and how far is Bethlehem away? It's just a few miles down the road. And, and they say, well, why don't you go with us? And, and Herod and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the religious rulers of the day, they look at the wise men who have come from around the world to see Jesus. And they say, you go, you find him, you worship him, you come back and tell us about him, and then we will join you. 
Here's my problem with this situation is they had one verse of Scripture. They had a star that they had followed, and yet the, the Jews, the Israelites, had over 300 Messianic verses of Scripture. They had over 300 verses of Scripture that would tell them when Jesus would be born, that would tell him where he would be born, the surroundings about his birth. Daniel gave them the time that he would be born. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem, and he would be called a Nazarite. He would come out of Nazareth. And, and so you have all these different things playing into the prophecy of the coming of Jesus, and yet they look at the wise men and say, you go and find him, you worship him. I have a problem with the fact that they had all the information and they missed the coming of Jesus. And yet wise men from around the world have one piece of Scripture and it's enough for them to pack their bags and to travel and to find Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have more information than you need to find Jesus today? And are there people who have little or no information walking right past you to worship a Savior because He's come to redeem them? That's all they need to know. I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's all they need to know and they can throw their hands in the air and worship. But then there are those of us. We have the Bible. We have read it. We have studied it. We have, we have researched it. We know so much about it and yet we can't find Jesus. Shepherds found him on a song. They're out in the fields watching the sheep and the angels come and sing. Wise men on a star, shepherds on a song. And the church, well, the church missed Jesus. They, they missed the birth of Jesus. And Jesus goes and he is rushed away from, from Bethlehem because Herod has sought to kill him. And, and then he stays in Egypt for two years and he comes back and he's in Nazareth. And he grows up and mom and dad take him to the temple. He's 12 years old when mom and dad take him to the temple. It's the rite of passage for a 12-year-old. And they take him to the temple and he goes in. And the Bible says that he begins to astound the religious rulers of the day with his wisdom, with his understanding, with his knowledge. What an amazing thing to have a 12-year-old walk in. This was a part of the Jewish custom that 12-year-olds would come in and go through this rite of custom. They were, not, they were used to 12-year-olds coming in, but they were not used to 12-year-olds amazing them. And yet somehow Joseph and Mary leave Jerusalem and they're on their way home. And Mary thinks to herself, I'm going to go check on Joseph and Jesus. And so she goes and asks Joseph, how's Jesus doing? And, Jesus, and Joseph says, well, I thought he was with you. And, and, and immediately he also says, it's my fault. And so they turn around and they run back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus teaching in the temple, astounding the rulers. And they say, Jesus, you, you need to come with us. You don't need uh, to, to be here by yourself. And they take him. Now, at what point don't you think we would stop and say, you know what? child prodigy here. This guy knows more than we know, and he's only 12. Why don't we just follow him? Keep our eye on him. He may develop into something special, but he disappears, and we don't see him again until he comes to be baptized of John the Baptist, which is an amusing encounter of itself. Because the Bible says that John the Baptist is down by the river and he's preaching repentance. He is just straight up preaching either you repent or you die. And the Bible says that all Israel came out to hear John the Baptist. 
We are led to believe that there are thousands of people that were coming out to hear John the Baptist. Here he is wearing coats of skin, eating locusts and honey, and screaming to the top of his lungs, you either repent or you die. And people are coming out, and he's baptizing them. And then the Bible says the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious rulers, they come out also. And, and John is not, not at all intimidated by them. He looks at them in the face and calls them serpents. He calls them names. And says you are vipers, and if you don't repent, you will go to hell. And he's preaching to them, and he's baptizing them. John the Baptist has an attitude problem. He is loud, he's obnoxious, he, he, he is blunt, he is rude, he is everything but what we should expect in a great preacher, a great orator. And yet the Bible says that everybody wanted to go and see him. What an interesting thing, what an interesting concept that a preacher should just get up and preach the truth. And so he gets to the pulpit and he's preaching and he's yelling at them. He must have been Pentecostal. And he's... And he's baptizing them. And it's all gone. And then Jesus walks up. And suddenly, John the Baptist's attitude changes. Because with me and with you, he is saying, you are a sinner and you must repent. But then he sees Jesus. And he says, whoa, I am not worthy to touch your shoes. And John recognizes that Jesus is the Master, the Savior, the Redeemer of the universe, come to be baptized. And, John, and Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. Now they're cousins, so there's a family dynamic here. John says, no, I'm not going to baptize you. That's what cousins do. They argue. And Jesus says, you are going to baptize me. And John says, no, I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, if you don't, I made you. I'll take you out. And not all that's recorded in the Bible. And so John baptizes Jesus. Now what happens next is very commonplace to all of us. We've all seen, all of us, when we were baptized, this very thing happened. The heavens opened up. And a voice spoke out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says that a dove descended from heaven in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember when all this happened, when you were baptized. If you were baptized in the church that I was baptized in, the water was freezing. And I only wanted one thing, to get out. But all the great praying saints of the church wanted to pray with me. So I was in there a while. But that did not happen. And yet the Bible says that Jesus gets out of the water and begins to walk away. And one single person recognizes who it is. And he runs to it's, it's It's Peter's brother, Andrew. And Andrew runs to Simon Peter and says, you've got to come check this guy out. And he begins to tell him. He's like, you, you know what? He says, I'm there. And, and I've seen John baptize all these people. And they just go and they get wet and they repent and they get out. And it's just one after the next. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes down there and John baptizes them. And the heavens opened up. And this voice speaks and 
And, Simon, and Andrew says to Simon Peter, you've got to come check this guy out. One single person out of thousands of people follow him. One. That's, that, that's not a very good track record. And Jesus begins his ministry and, be, and goes in the wilderness for 40 days and fasting. And, begin, and, and, and he comes out and chooses his disciples. And, and, and the first thing Jesus does is goes, he goes to a wedding. He gets there and he performs a miracle. And they let him leave. The coolest miracle of all to me in the Bible is when Jesus goes to the grave of Lazarus. That's just a lot of fun. Because Lazarus was sick. And Mary and Martha said, send word to Jesus. He will come and he will heal Lazarus. And everything will be wonderful. And so Jesus gets the word. And his disciples say, let's go. Let's go heal Lazarus. Jesus said, no, I'm not going. Not going for your sakes. That doesn't make any sense. And so they wait a few days. And then Jesus says, okay, it's time to go to Lazarus. But Lazarus is already dead, Jesus. Yes, I know. I waited for your sakes. Still, that doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus goes to Bethany. And as he's approaching Bethany, Mary and Martha receive word that Jesus is coming. And so they run out to meet him. They run out at separate times, but cumulatively the story is very similar. And they say to him, Jesus, if you had come, you could have healed Lazarus and everything would have been great. And Jesus looks at them and says, do you believe in the resurrection? And their answer is, yes, Lord, we believe in the resurrection in the last days. And Jesus says, no. You don't understand. I am the resurrection. He, he looks at them and says, You believe in some resurrection in the last days. What I want you to understand is that I am the embodiment of the resurrection. There's not God at a resurrection. God is the resurrection. And so they, they, that's a big problem that the church has. As we always think of God up there and a healing over here and a miracle over there and forgiveness over here. We need to understand something. It's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. There is not forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ. He is forgiveness. There is not grace outside of Jesus. He is the embodiment of grace. He is all of it together. And so Jesus says, take me to Lazarus' grave. So they take him to the grave of Lazarus, and there's all kinds of people there that are there weeping and crying and snotting. And Jesus says, I'm going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. And the people think, well, that's, that's an impressive thing, but he's dead. And Jesus says, I need you to move the stone away. Now, I'm sure, I'm sarcastic, there's usually one in every crowd. So I'm confident there was some sarcastic individual there. And, and if there was, that individual would have looked at Jesus and would have said, this, this isn't recorded either, but you can assure that it would happen because flesh was there. You're telling me you're getting ready to call a dead man out of a grave, but you need help moving the stone? I don't think so. If you can call dead people up, you probably can move the stone. And, and, but somebody says, you know what, let's give it a shot. Let's move the stone. 
There's a whole other message in that. They had, they had the ability to move the stone. And so God lets you do what you have the ability to do. They didn't have the ability to call forth from the grave. And so God does what only he can do. That's a whole other message. And so Jesus steps forward. Now you can imagine this crowd around this too. They're all on their tippy toes looking through. It's silent. They want to hear what's going on. And Jesus says, and he probably had a sense of humor too, like he would start and then stop, look around. Jesus was a happy individual. I know they painted him all frail and white and and sour looking in his face. But more than likely, Jesus could have been in the MMA. You know, he did go to the temple and whip some people. I expected he was kind of brawny. And so Jesus looks at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden they hear this rustling. And then they see a shadow. And then they see Lazarus come bouncing out of that grave. And Jesus looks at him, them and says, loose him and let him go. Now that is really cool. God just called a dead man out of a grave. But John 11, John 11, 36 is a really cool verse of Scripture, Jesus wept. John eleven forty five is an incredibly sad verse of Scripture. It said, some of them which were with them and saw what happened believed. Some believed. Really? A dead man just got out of the grave and some of you don't believe? The very next verse of Scripture, verse 46, says, And some of them went their ways. Watch what happens. It says they go back to the the religious leaders and they complain and said, you are not going to believe that Jesus had the audacity to call a dead man forth. You're, no. I think we should have a church council. And so they have a committee meeting. You don't believe me? Read verse 47. It said they didn't use the word committee meeting, but it says that they got together and they began to discuss what they should do about this individual that is turning water to wine, that is opening blind eyes, that is telling people with withered hands to stretch them forth, that is telling lame people to get up and walk, the audacity that somebody would walk into our church and begin doing these wonderful things. We've got to get rid of him. Seems ridiculous to even say that. But ironically, that's what happened. That's what's still happening. It's what happened. It's what's still happening. And they get angry at Jesus. And they go and they arrest him. And, 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 the, and the whole picture of them arresting Jesus is quite, a, is quite humorous because, because the Bible says that Jesus went into the, went into the garden to pray. And he's there praying. And his, you know the whole story. The disciples fall asleep. And Judas goes and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And they come rushing in with a band of soldiers. And a mob, just a gang, come rushing in. The Bible says the soldiers are there. And the mob has staves and, and swords and weapons. And they all come in to arrest Jesus. One man. They know where he is. But before they left, 
to go to the garden. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I need you guys to get some weapons. It says weapons, plural. And somebody says, well, we've got one sword. And Jesus says, that'll be enough. I think that's humorous. Really? That'll be enough. And they come running in. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Now, when Jesus said that, this is in your Bibles. I'm not making this part up. The Bible says that it laid them all on their backs. The authority in the words of Jesus was such that Roman soldiers who were battle-hardened were laid flat on their backs. Now, at what point, when you're picking yourself up off the ground, do you not stop and say, this might be a bad idea? But they don't. They rush in, and they've got one sword. And Peter takes out that one sword. Thank, thank God Jesus asked to bring weapons. And Peter swings. And Malchus ducks just in time to have his ear removed. Now immediately, Malchus saw the flash of the sword. Malchus felt the pain rushed through his body. He could feel the cold blood run down the side of his neck. And now he sees it on his hands. And he looks to the ground and there lies his ear. And Jesus steps in and reaches down and picks up that ear and puts it back up aside Malchus's head. The pain is still there. His hands are still covered with blood. The flash of the sword is still in his eyes. But everything is back like it's supposed to be. And Malchus slides out of that crowd while the rest of them rush in to arrest Jesus. And they go in and get him. And Malchus runs home and begins to tell his wife why his clothes are blood-soaked and what he was doing, but how his mind changed. And they take Jesus and they take him and they begin to try him and they begin to spit on him and lie about him and accuse him. And there, Pilate comes out and says, you you got to get him out of here. My wife had a dream. I washed my hands of all of this. And they take him to Herod. And they're transferring it around Jerusalem that night. And then all, they begin to take him to Calvary. And they take him to Calvary. And there they nail him to the cross of Calvary. And they lift him up on that cross where he's there. And you know the story of how the thieves are on two sides. And, and they look at him and one of them reviles him. And the other worships him. And you know how that all happens happens. But the Bible says that Jesus looks up and says, it is finished. And when he looks up to say that, the Bible says that the sky turned black. And that the earth began to shake. And that rocks were broken in two. The Bible says that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. 
And the Bible says that dead men got up out of their graves and went through the city and were seen of many. If I were in my house on that evening, and I had felt the earth shake, and I had seen the sky turn black, and I'd heard people clamoring about the veil down at the temple, and then dead men come walking by my house. But no, no. I've got my religious beliefs. I'm not missing anything. We've got it all together. We've got our programs. We've got our songs. Thank God for Sister Shannon. What a wonderful worship leader. We don't have to worry about anything. She's going to take care of it. We've got the children's ministry. Oh, what a relief not to have my kids. That's the only reason I go to church, because I have free child care for... Hour and a half, two hours. Hopefully Pastor Brown's long-winded night because I need a break. <laughs> Jesus is hanging on the cross. And they come and get him. They take him down from the cross. Joseph takes him and buries him in his tomb. And they seal the tomb. And the religious rulers run back to Pilate and they say, Pilate, give us a band of soldiers to go and guard Tomb. We're afraid that his disciples will come and steal his body and say that he is risen. And Pilate looks at them. And I love his attitude because he's sarcastic. And he says, you go and make it as sure as you can because Pilate knows. I could send the entire Roman army after that grave to seal it. But after what I've witnessed here, it wouldn't matter what I did. We'll just try our best. And hope it works out for you. Take luck. And so they seal the grave. And they're there watching it. And all of a sudden, three days after the first earthquake, the earth begins to shake again. And the, the stone that is in front of that grave begins to move. And the soldiers see it and realize... There's nobody moving it on the outside. Whoever's moving it must be moving it from the inside. And that stone rolls out of the way and a bright light shines out of it. And the Bible says that they fell backwards as dead men and their faces became pale. And when they came to, nobody was in the grave. And they get up. And they run back into Jerusalem. And as they're coming to Jerusalem, the Bible also says that the religious rulers happen to see them coming. And they go rushing over to them and ask them, what are you doing inside the city? You're supposed to be out there guarding Jesus of Nazareth's grave. And the soldiers turn around and look at them and say, you ask us to guard the tomb of a dead man. And they fold their arms and say, what are you talking about? The tomb of a dead man. And they look back and tell them, the guy that you ask us to crucify, the guy that we nailed to a cross, the guy we shoved a spear up through his side, the guy we beat 39 times, the guy we put a crown of thorns on his head, that guy 
The guy that made the sky turn black. The guy that made the ground shake. The guy that broke storms, stones and tore the veil from top to bottom. That guy, that guy got up and walked out of his own grave. That must have been interesting hearing a Roman soldier preach that message. But the Bible says that a Roman centurion standing at the cross of Jesus looked up and said, Surely this must be the Son of God. He had one encounter. Not a lifetime of religious study. One encounter. And he says, This is him. And all the rest of them, they got their scrolls, they got their robes, they got their nice buildings. And Jesus is in their way. And so they look at these soldiers and they pull out their wallets and they say, how much is it going to cost to keep your mouth shut? Because we don't want this word getting out because it would get in the way of our agenda. It would ruin our system. They paid to keep from having their lifestyle messed up. And as a result, they missed it. This is not something that is foreign to us. We are a people that are so busy going through life that we jump off of a D.C. metro rail station and we rush on to work and we walk right past the world's greatest violinist as we're hurrying to work and we fail to notice the beauty and what is going on. I want to have a lifestyle change that says it's not about my agenda. It's not about all the things that I think it should be. But I want there to be such a humility, such a brokenness, such a submission in me that it's Jesus, whatever you want to do. If you don't want to be born in a king's palace, you don't have to be born in a king's palace. If you prefer the manger, the manger's fine. I just want to know that you're coming to die on a cross. And if you, if you don't want to do it this way and you want to do it that way, that's fine. And it's my responsibility to come to the Word of God and to say, God, I don't want to bring my preconceived ideas, my notions to the table, but I want to come here with the heart of humility that says I lay myself down. Not me, not my will, but thy will be done. I have preached myself into a headache. The reality is, in this auditorium today, most, if not all of us, have only partially submitted ourselves to God because we have our own idea of how things should be. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said, Timothy, they're not all like you. Most people seek their own. Even when they're seeking God, they seek their own purpose. I want to break that down. I want to get to a place where had I been alive 2,000 years ago, and Jesus was to be born, and Joseph and Mary were looking for a place that I would have said, Come on in. 
I'll make room for you. But more than likely, we are all the innkeeper that sets. There's a manger right over there. Maybe that Shannon, will you help me? Would you close your eyes? I want to be I want to be broken this morning. I want to be of a mind that says, Jesus. Nothing else matters. Everything I've learned, everything I've seen, everything I think I know, everything I own, it all comes second to you. I don't want to seek my own first, God. I want to seek you first. Because I'm telling you right now, you're frustrated. The reason you're frustrated with your walk with God because God's not fitting into your plan. And the problem is not God. The problem is your plan. God couldn't fit into the temple and all the religious rulers of the day. He couldn't fit himself into their plan. And so he went around them. He was born in a manger and had wise men come and worship him and shepherds from a song. And if you see people around you getting more out of God than you are, I challenge you this morning, you've got to change your plan. You've got to change your plan. This altar is too small for everybody to come this morning. So I only want those that are desperate. I only want those that are desperate to get up and rush down to this altar as quickly as you can. In the name of Jesus. 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 God. I will change my plan. I will change my lifestyle. I will change my way of thinking. Because I don't want you to move around me, God. I want you to move through me. I don't want you to move around me, Lord Jesus. I want you to move through me. I invite every single person in this church to turn and kneel at the chair where they are sitting. To find a place in prayer, whatever you want to do. This morning, if you don't like how God's working in your life, it's not God. It's not God. It's your plan. You're the one stopping God. You're the one hindering Him. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.
amen. If you're still praying, keep on. Don't want to stop anybody. And let's just let God's sweet presence continue to move. I thank God for a beautiful message. Amen. Directed at to the heart of, of this church. Amen. Amen. I, God's good. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Just a reminder that next week is our picnic and you need to bring something. Um, see Sister Leticia or Sister Mimi about bringing something to the picnic. And then don't forget right now, downstairs is the uh, cruise line buffet with a lot of good food. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week.